Amen. This is the word of God. Amen. May God write it on our hearts. There are no more left. Everyone's dead. I'm leaving you. I don't love you anymore. It's a boy. It's a girl. I do. And maybe finally, Christ died for our sins. Everything I just said to you is a word. Words matter, don't they? Words matter. They do. And we often don't realize our duty to be careful with words until it's too late. Words matter. And of course, I, as a preacher this morning, say that. That makes sense. The preacher, Solomon, can say that because we make a living on our words, right? But I tell you, the truth is, words matter all of the time. We cannot even begin to philosophically discuss whether or not words matter or not without using words. I cannot tell someone there is no such thing as absolute truth with my words because that would be an absolute truth. I cannot tell someone that my truth is my truth and their truth is their truth without acknowledging that we have some things in common for that to even work, even namely that we're speaking words. Words matter. They matter poetically. They matter historically. They matter uh, eternally. Words matter. And this idea of my truth, my words being mine, can really be dangerous For example, if we take my truth as mine and then say, I will respect your truth as yours if you respect mine, and we take that to its full extent, we may land ourselves in things like Holocaust or World War. Consider World War II. One regime in that war had determined that their truth, the truth as they saw it, existed to bring death to all Jews and to raise the flag of Nazi tyranny on every nation in Europe. Just leave them alone with their truth, and then the world was seized by evil. But hear me, this is not just a one-time issue. This is our issue as people collectively on this earth. This is our issue as members of this church here. This is an issue as members of the families we represent. And hear me, this is, uh, this is our issue as individuals who will stand before God. The issue is words matter. Words matter across the nation's tabled meetings and the dinner table. Doing silly things with words, like saying, you know, none of them matter or just mine matter, is only to use words in the most despicable, deplorable, and even depressing way possible. You and I forget that words matter especially when we get emotional. We speak loudly, we speak boldly, angrily in ways that we later end up regretting and therefore have to speak words of regret and shame and maybe worse, violence, if we really haven't dealt with the weight of our own words. Words matter. And we've seen the preacher of Ecclesiastes knew this. And now the conclusion. We realize the conclusion is that he could have said much, much more, but he didn't friend here today who's catching the last sermon of our entire Ecclesiastes series. Let me encourage you. You can read the message of the preacher in about 30 minutes. He didn't waste words at all. 
Instead, he saw words as what they can be, useful, helpful. And now we come to the epilogue here at the end, and the theme is words matter. And I want us to examine four different ways that words matter this morning. First, we'll see the preacher's words. Secondly, we'll see the shepherd's words. Thirdly, a father's words. And then the final word, the final word. Let's believe together that words matter by first looking at the preacher's words, the preacher's words. Look with me at verse nine, as you saw there. The preacher's message is done. We pick up in verse nine and we may ask the question, who is speaking? Like who is talking right now? And we see that it's the same person who was talking at the very beginning of this book. In Ecclesiastes 1.1, it says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. It seems clear that this is someone else entirely than the preacher or possibly the preacher himself, just using a literary tool of writing in third person to really get his point across. Either way, let's avoid the distracting debate over authorship this morning so we don't miss seeing the blessing of studying the preacher's words. Remember, words matter. The thing about the preacher's words we learn in verse 9 of why they matter is that how you live as a preacher also matters. That's what makes your words matter is how you live. How you live matters. We see the character of the preacher displayed in this information about his life and work in verse 9. And that's important. The preacher's characteristics are in view here. Look at verse 9 again. His words mattered because he was wise. His words mattered because he cared. You see that? He cared to teach the people knowledge. His word mattered because he was a hard worker. He was diligent to weigh and study and arrange in such a way that made sense. He was a hard worker. It shows, doesn't it? I mean, as we have seen, he has showcased beautifully and honestly how difficult life can be in these evil days we live in under the sun. He has shown that. He has shown a better way. And yet he's often done it through the difficult lens of negativity, right? He has shown us this. He's been very honest. His character comes through. He has given us knowledge. And in this conclusion, this epilogue, he or the one who's helping us bring to understanding what he's done is doing it with great care. And you notice he's doing it for a people. Okay, he's been willing to go through difficult topics, teach heavy truths, sit for a little bit longer with the people, which we know and believe to be God's chosen people at this time, Israel. This is their wisdom that we get to look in and understand. But know this, how you live will impact your words. And that's what we see in the preacher's words here. And this is of great importance to us. And I mean us, Redemption Baptist Church. This should be of great importance to us. We're talking about preachers right now. We're talking about somebody who stood up and tried to make sense of the Bible. And I think this is calling us to examine and realize that how you live matters in relation to what you preach. That's what he's saying here. And we value in our church's identity as elders. Blake and I meet weekly 
We want to ask each other the hard questions that correspond with what it means to be someone to stand up in front and to preach and to teach. We want to hold 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 as a mirror in our lives because we don't want to just preach words and say they matter. We also want to live words and say they matter. This is why as a church we recognize elder plurality and elders, people who stand before the congregation. And this is why we admonish every new member who joins our church as a male. And we say, brother, what's keeping you from standing and preaching and teaching and being an elder five or ten years from now? As the Lord grows our church, we want to ask these questions. Why? Because words matter and how you live matters. Words can become deflated if you're not someone wise, if you don't walk in knowledge, weigh and arrange with great care. Words matter. They help you live. Secondly, they help you speak the truth. And speaking the truth matters. That's what we see about the preacher's words in verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words that he spoke in this message, uh, they were meant to be enjoyable to the reader. Think back on our series. I hope you've been enjoying it. Sometimes it's hard, but it's not when you realize he's a poet. Uh, He understands the power of poetry, of illustration, of parallels, of beauty in God's created order and what it teaches us. And he drew on poetic poetic license often to really present something that's worth our time. You know why? Because it's something beautiful that will never fade. That's what God's word is. The word uh, for words of delight is oftentimes in verse 10 there translated as acceptable words, Uh, just the right words, right? Finding the right words, delightful sayings. Good preachers do strive for this. They want to make sure that things are clear, if they dare to speak for God himself. But look, these words that we preach when we gather here, when the assembly would gather and read wisdom in their day, they're not just to be enjoyable to you. They're not just supposed to be pleasant. Above all, they're actually supposed to be trusted by us as readers, as listeners. They're to be believed by us. They're to be upright and truthful words. And that's what we see in verse 10. The preacher's words were upright. That word carries with it the idea of honesty, of straightness, right, or agreement. The the word truth can be translated as firmness, trustworthiness, constancy, a duration, or faithfulness. And all of these words point to the importance of preached words that matter. Far more important than eloquence are the upright words of truth from the preacher that we've studied. The uprightness and the truthfulness of any preacher's word should point us to the word of truth that scripture ultimately is. Okay, just consider the first preacher in the New Testament after Christ's resurrection to the Gentiles, Paul. He spoke to people like me and you, non-Jews, which I don't think anybody in here is Jewish. If you are, it's a mix of it. Not as pure as it was then, but regardless, he's speaking to Greeks. Surely his sermon, if he's going to reach across a Jewish barrier and reach into Greek culture, surely it's got to be flashy, right? I mean, it's got to be, you know, culturally insightful. He's got to exegete the culture if he's going to really get the truth to them, right? 
You know, he's got to be, you know, the theater of, of Athens, you know, in Acts where Paul stands there in the Aragopagus and talks to them, or when he's in Corinth and he's talking to them, or when he's in Ephesus and he's talking to them. You know, they were inoculated with theater. They loved a good show. So surely he's got to do, you know, a day at the theaters. That's what he's got to do to reach them, right? I mean, what a sermon series for him, right? Free giveaways, a day at the theater, Jesus juke him, right? No. This is what Paul says. He says, and I, when I came to you, Corinth, brothers, sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Other translations say with eloquence or beauty. No. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I preached the gospel. I didn't win you with something else and then try to get the gospel to you. I came and I said, it's the gospel. You worship an unknown God. I'm telling you, the known God died on a cross for you. And he rose again. I preached the gospel. Martin Luther, the famous German theologian, he understood in his day the importance of the word alone being clearly taught in the churches during the Reformation. So much so, he called the church a mouth house. Mouth house. I love that. He did not reinvent preaching. Luther, uh, instead, he led its reform back to the prominence of how he saw preaching in God's word. The church is not a penthouse, but a mouth house, Luther declared. For since the advent of Christ, the gospel, which used to be hidden in the scriptures, has become an oral preaching. Christ himself has not written anything, nor has he ordered anything to be written, but rather to be preached by word of mouth. This preached word, when it's scripture, is upright. It is truth. And it is the authority in your life. If it's not the authority in your life, some lesser authority is. So just like the words of the preacher matter, why do they matter? Well, because they are declaring the truth of authority in your life. Let me give you an illustration. We had some guests in our home the other day, and they, did not, they don't believe like we do. They believe differently than we do. And one of them mentioned that we are the type of believers to be termed book worshipers. Now, I was gracious in the moment. I didn't interact rudely with this guest of mine or anything like that. No, I just stored the phrase in my brain and I knew I would think about it later. And I did. So I asked myself later, I said, are, are we book worshipers? Do we worship the book? Do we worship the, the manuscripts that were translated to form this trustworthy translation, this book of the Bible? I began to ask myself, do we wrongly debate and refine our understanding of this canonization, which is basically this process by which the books of the Bible are recognized as being authority, authoritative. And then why other books are not, we would say. Is that because we worship the book? Do I do that? My conclusion, of course, was no. We don't worship the book like one thinks of worshiping God. But we realize that the book matters. The book informs. The book presents. The book proclaims. The book instructs, and get this, the book has been preserved by God himself more than any other book forever and ever and ever, and it will be. These words of the preacher that we've studied are authoritative to us because they are God's words. 
And no one is more upright and truthful than God. The preacher rightly states this. You will do well to heed his words. So the preacher shows us how you live matters and speaking the truth matters. But let's hear some other words from the shepherd now. The shepherd's words, point two. Look at verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. You hear that? Wisdom is like goads. Now you may ask, what's a goad? Well, goads are the sharp pointed sticks that shepherds used during this time in Israel to keep sheep or to keep livestock on the trail, okay, to keep them on the path in the way that they needed them to go. So if a terrible storm, for instance, was coming in and it was threatening the sheep, they were in danger, or if maybe a wolf was spotted and the sheep need to be moved or corralled together for safety and they would not move, then the pointed end of the goad are oftentimes it would have nails attached to the end of it, kind of like spurs, uh, you know, on a cowboy and their sharpness. It would prod the sheep and it would move them quickly. Today, we use electric cattle prods to do the job and get, you know, get uh, our livestock moving. Even a large bull responds to the power of electricity. <laughs> Wisdom's like that, okay? It shocks the heart to reality that it ignores, sin that it approaches, and, and it gives help that can be received only from God. Wisdom is also like nails, he says, nails that are driven in straight and correctly in such a way that they, they hold together, okay? They don't fail. Whatever their purpose was in being driven in, it's, it's accomplished. And man, the preacher has been nailing us. It feels like a coffin because he talks about death. But, you know, for lack of a better term, he's been nailing in the coffin the wisdom of how to live in this, in this difficult life. An illustration, I think, from our home will help you to get this image of, you know, wisdom being like nails. Uh, my wife has an uncanny ability to ignore studs in the walls, uh, to ignore, you know, drywall fasteners and screws and instructions of how to hang things. And yet she can still hang impossibly large items in our drywall with the tiniest little hanging nails. I I'm always amazed at it. I mean, give the girl some toothpaste to mark the spot where she wants it, a few nails and a hammer. She will hang a 50-pound Hobby Lobby special up for us wherever we need to do it. So beware when you come over to our house. Everything's below the head, so it'll just be your toes if you walk too closely. But, you know, to my wife's credit and defense, I have not witnessed a single decoration fall by the grace of God, and so credit to her. Yet when it came time for us to hang our new television on the wall this last week, we stopped our normal habit and we spent 35 minutes trying to locate studs in the wall. Why did we do that? Because we knew better than to hang such an expensive item up so flippantly. So what did we do? We drove those screws into the wood itself. We wanted to make sure that even if, I don't know, a young kid comes running into the living room and just smacks the side of the TV in excitement, that thing wasn't gonna fall on the ground and make me very upset, right? We wanted it secured, right? We wanted it in the studs. Friends, that's what God's wisdom is like. Wisdom is like that in your life. It's, it's not drywall screws barely holding up something beautiful and heavy and real. Um, it, it's, it's a stud. It, it's you getting the truth from God no matter what you think about it because it's pure and undiluted. It helps you. It secures you to the beauty and the obedience you need to follow God, even through trial, right? 
You can hang a lot of weight on God's wisdom is the idea. By design, it has been given to help you and I bear the weight of life's enormous difficulties. You see in every bit of wisdom literature in the Bible that we are given and we're told to obey, it's to be connected to something. Now, I told you this point's called the shepherd's words. I understand we haven't talked about the shepherd yet. I wanted to talk about wisdom first because when you talk about wisdom, as verse 11 does, and then you see that helpful semicolon, it now says they, in other words, the wisdom, it's given to you, look at it, by one shepherd. Do you see that? Underline it in your Bible. Me and you have a habit of connecting wisdom to the wrong place. We take Bible verses out of Proverbs and we connect them to their result and we absolutize them or we make them into a promise they're not and we ignore that they were always calling us to a principle to call us to God. So for instance, we may say something like, raise a child up in the fear and admonition of the Lord and he will not soon depart from you, from me. This is God's principle wisdom in Proverbs. And yet we know that people raised in the fear and in the mission of the Lord can actually wander away from God. It's not a guarantee. We've seen it, right? I mean, we see it all the time in our deconstruct ex-evangelical days where people that were seemingly raised up in the fear and the knowledge and the understanding of God are now going wayward. How could they walk away with what they believed then? And we unhelpfully take what should be principally pointing us to God himself and our dependency, and we sometimes make it about what it promises. Take an example from Ecclesiastes. You know, he talks about death all the time. And in our circumstances of how we feel when we lose a loved one, we naturally can find relief that the word is understanding of how we feel, and that's good. I mean, you can read the book of Ecclesiastes if you're grieving, and you can understand that, that like a stillborn baby who dies, who never knew life, it's better to be like them than to live under the weight of, of death, you know, of, of like living in a life that's so hard, you can almost in the darkest sense be envious of a stillborn because they skipped straight from the womb to God's presence, you know? Like you can feel that, but here's the thing, if you only felt that, and you failed to like go a step further and connect yourself to the living God who's the God of the stillborn or you and living in your misery? If you failed principally to understand that he's a good father in heaven who lets trial happen maybe to you, but it's not for anything other than his glory and namesake and your good. You missed that principally? Well, you'll get lost in sadness. You will. Indeed, we need to realize we're, we got to connect our wisdom to some words. I mean, the words matter. Yes, I mean, they are what? They're like goads. They're like nails. Like, they're firmly fixed. But hear me, they're given by one shepherd. In other words, look through wisdom and see God. That's the idea because his words matter. That's who the shepherd is that you underlined. It's God himself. It's not a wasted capital letter in your Bible that's intentional. The Hebrew makes it very clear. He's trying to say, this whole time, I've only been trying to get us all to this shepherd for what he says is final and much better. We've seen it, haven't we? We've seen the preacher's words, the shepherd's words. Now let's see point three, a father's words. Look in verse 12 while I get a drink. My son. Beware of anything beyond these. 
of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. We transition to a father's words here. Like any good father, the words of this father give us two quick sub points. You know what they do? They warn us and they protect us. First, they warn us. Look what he says. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Okay, so if verse 11 is true and wisdom that works in our lives, it moves us to godliness because it it points us to God himself and connects in him, it connects us to him in all that we do, then we need to be warned about pursuing anything else, which is exactly what this father wants his son to know. Ask yourself the question this morning, do you need to be warned about trusting anything besides God's word. I think if you ask yourself that, you would say, yes, I do. Here's why. We stray so easily from the good shepherd. Let's keep the analogy of sheep and this shepherd who gives us wisdom. And let's walk in this warning. You know, Isaiah 53, 6 says, all, we, all, all of us, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned Everyone to his own way. This is our default as humans. Like sheep, me and you go astray, turn from God. Every one of us finding our own way. We find our own path. My truth, maybe we term it. We put our heads down in times of grazing and so often find that the best grass keeps leading us to the edge of a cliff, oblivious to the jagged rocks that wait our fall. That's the kind of sheep you and I are. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That hymn writer, is not, he's not just trying to like reflect on nothing. That's a personal testimony of what I'm talking about. And as lost and ruined sinners who, who maybe don't know the love of Christ today, who face eternal judgment, our turning is really of much graver consequence if we are so far that we've never repented. I mean, journey too far for too long, away from God's promise, ignore the reality of hell, diminish the understanding of Scripture as an authority in your life, and before you know it, the vanity of your life that's a vapor will be gone, and you'll be dashed to pieces on those rocks. Now, what about the church? As those who have been bought with the price of Christ's life, The good news for us is is that it is Christ who has been dashed to pieces for us. Amen? I mean, what is the gospel but the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep? And this is love, not that you love God, but that he loved you and so gave his son. Christ is the shepherd, the goad, the wisdom, the nails, and he himself bore nails on a tree in his body, the sin that you would so maybe let you lead you astray. This is the gospel. The people of God, however, still face real consequences if we wander. And so the warning of a father's words are always helpful. You may be spared from hell, but you also need to be uh, spared from the despair of walking away from God's wisdom. So how do you, uh, you know, so how do me and you stray beyond these words? Well, look, it's not limited to what he says, but we will deal with what he says as a primary answer to that question. We're warned first to not stray. And then we're given an example of what straying could look like. Look at the rest of the verse. He tells his son, protecting words, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. 
you and I forget, church, the importance of the fact of what God has said will last forever. There's only one thing that will truly last forever in this life. One thing, the word of God. The word of God. Let me show it to you. Isaiah 46 through 8 makes it clear. Isaiah says, a voice cries, or excuse me, a voice says, cry. And I said, Isaiah, what shall I cry? This is what he cries. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the bread, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Jesus affirmed this. He showed up in his own words in Matthew 24, 35. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Friends, this is a problem of origin for me and you. The first lie that led our parents, Adam and Eve, away in rebellion against God was the consideration of an outside source was a consideration of something else being primary besides God's words being primary. You remember? Satan, the serpent, the deceiver, appears, and he has one leading notion in Genesis 3.1. And he shows it plainly. He says this to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden? The serpent starts there. Because before we ever encounter evil, the temptation of man was already presented to us as something as simple as not trusting God's word. We back up to Genesis 2, 15 through 17. No serpent, no evil, just man created. And look what the text says. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Arkent Hughes raises a good question in his commentary at this point. He asks, What was the temptation for Adam in light of the every tree abundance that he had? and the surely die threat of the forbidden tree. What was the temptation? Before the fall even, what was the temptation? Simply this. The temptation to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to seek wisdom without reference to the word of God. He sought out wisdom without reference to what God said. Simple as that. Adam and Eve desired wisdom but they sought it outside of the word and the will of God. They ignored their father's warning. They ignored it. They removed themselves from their father's protection. You and me are no different. Beloved, we make our appeal to many books we land our faith in many podcasts. We attend our faith at many conferences. We read many articles. We press into many friendships. We 
laugh with many reels, we sit around many fire pits, we hang out in our diaries and our journals or in the place of our minds. And sometimes, even in those really good things, be warned, we can stray. I mean, if I'm pointing one finger out, I'm pointing four back. Beloved, I'm with you in this struggle. Sometimes the word of God just doesn't seem like it's enough. Be honest. Sometimes slithering, susceptible to serpents type mentality seizes the human heart, even the Christian heart. And it dares us to believe that somehow the tweaking of the word or the, the, the other presentation of or whatever is enough. And it's not. This is a problem of origin. From the beginning, you and I have been children, really unable to receive our father's advice, our father's wisdom. I mean, take note of the context. I mean, we're finishing the book and he says, my son, imagine Solomon at the end of his tether, dying in his old age, a thousand women, a soul divided, a mess, a kingdom falling apart, soon to be split and lost. And he writes, my son, hear me out, my son, my son, above all things, beware of anything beyond God's word. Beware of it, my son. I mean, this is what the father said to Adam and Eve. This is what the father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change today says to you, Christian. He says, my son, my daughter, be warned, be protected. Desire nothing beyond this. A father's words. And what is this? Well, it's a final word. Last point, verse 13, the final word. Verse 13 says, the end of the matter. All has been heard. It shows us that truly, finally, it's time to bring this discussion to a close. There will be more, uh, excuse me, there will be no more discussion after this. You see, after this, for the people comes decision. It comes action. It comes no more speaking. Instead, it comes obedience and eventually judgment. It's final and it's very clear. All has been heard. Okay? It's been debated. It's been pursued. Remember the book, guys. Natural man is now at his last point. It's the end of the tether. Everything's been examined. The author will speak plainly now. And amazingly, he speaks and he says, fear God and keep God's commandments. This is the duty of man. Now, the word duty is actually not there. It's funny. You know, duty can be as meaningless as a kid's snarky joke, right? Ha <laughs> ha, he said duty. It can also be as serious as combating evil Nazi regimes like we talked about at the beginning of our sermon, the duty of a soldier. Well, what is it here? It's this fancy thing called a rhetorical elision. In other words, it's not there, but it is there. Okay, it's assumed that if everything has been said about what we've made mention of, right, the preacher's words being true and upright, the, the, the understanding that a shepherd has given these, one greater above the sun has given these. I mean, if we really understand as children of God that it's coming for our good, we need to be warned by it. If we've really sat with it for a while, then now is the conclusion to realize this applies to everybody. It applies to all men. Everyone's duty in other words, everyone should fear God. Everyone must deal with God. Everyone should fight to try to understand God. Everyone must see God as holy. It's this idea of know your place in relation to God. 
And the invitation written by Solomon here to his own sons, to the people of God, to fear God, it's rooted in the hope of the Messiah to come for them, okay? For me and you this morning, it's rooted in the shocking, sober, and clear hope that the Messiah has come. So whether preach then or preach now, it's looking forward, it's looking backwards, it's saying that there is a judgment coming. So fear God and keep his commandments. You cannot keep his commandments on your own, but fear him, rightly revere him, understand that you stand before him, give account of your life, take stock. Think about it like this. You work differently when your boss shows up on the shift, don't you? Children straighten up and appear a little bit different when they expected mom and dad not to be there and then they're there. Your heart races when the cop pulls out of his perch on the highway behind you, even though you're running the speed limit. You don't speak as flippantly, maybe, around your mama or your grandma. We understand authority, and we understand it on different levels. We're constantly adjusting our mindset or our wardrobe or our words in relation to authority as we move about on this earth. I mean, there's only a few of us that are so, you know, retarded in this regard that they would be willing to, I don't know, like, you know, be in the president, you know, be in front of the president, you know, like holding, holding a Coca-Cola with their cut-off shirt, you know, with no understanding. I mean, for the most part, people are going to be suit, tie, respect, regardless of policy. Why? Because there's somebody here that, like, matters. Like, I'm going to clean up for this event because it's an authority. I understand it. And the Bible shows up and it says, fear God and keep his commandments. Because when he shows up, you must be able to align yourself perfectly with his commandments. If not, fear him. And so it seems like doomsday. You see, everyone's wired for judgment. We live our lives worried about authorities around and over us. This is because God has written on every heart a general orientation about this day that the preacher talks about. Now, Paul makes it so clear for us to really just kind of leave Ecclesiastes and run to the gospel because he says in Acts 17 to a bunch of uh, pagans who are there and don't really know necessarily the context of Israel, but they know their own context. And this is what Paul says to them. He says, the times of ignorance, your past, God overlooked like, how gracious is God that he, you should fear him and keep his commands, but he'll overlook it. The times of ignorance, God has overlooked. But now, Paul says, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising said man from the dead. Now, who's Paul talking about? In conclusion of this book, way worse than the fear of your granny if you think of her as an authority in your life, or your mom if you think of her as the ultimate authority in your life, or your coworkers as you fight to earn their approval and thinking of them as an authority, whether it's the cops or any other authority over you, God is the ultimate judge of the earth. He has fixed this day 
The conclusion of this book may not be a gospel conclusion itself, but it primes the human heart to be ready to hear the gospel and the truth. It points us to the hope we have in Christ to escape the wrath that we deserve in judgment. The words are upright because they point us to the good news that Christ has died for us. He has lived again for us. He will return for us. He will live for us forever. We will do it with him, free of serpents, free of temptations to doubt his authority. Until then, what do we do? We cleave to this word. You know why? Because words matter. Bind yourself to the words, friend. The preacher's words, the shepherd's words, a father's words. Please hear the final word. The whole duty of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. This is the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's pray. Let's respond in song and praise God for being found in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that sobering hope. If we be found anywhere, Lord, let us be found in Christ. For on our own, God, we don't fear you perfectly. And on our own, we do not keep your commands perfectly. But one has come and one has done it. You have feared God perfectly, Christ. You have obeyed God's commands perfectly. And in your, perfect, in your perfection, you die for us. And you call us to stand with you. And so God, help us to stand in Christ alone. Help us to find that these words are a greater word than any word we could ever bind ourselves to. And may all the things that we listen to that are not your word, may they only serve in our lives to point us back to your word. God, we know that your word will build a people. God, you've done it for us individually. Remind us now corporately as we sing that it is not that we are alone, but that we have been bought with the price of Christ's life so that we can glorify him together. Help us now to sing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.